Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Bearded Things. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of your bearded hosts, and I'm here with my buddy, Tyler. Tyler, how are you doing, man? I am I'm doing okay. I'm really tired. I'm kind of physically and mentally exhausted, but other than that, I'm pretty peachy. That's that's awesome, man. I am right there with you. I, I imagine you're pretty pooped with just a lot of things going on and work and whatnot, and I'm pooped because... I'm still in school and <laughs> nerd. <laughs> Seriously. Like I have to give myself a wedgie every day. <laughs> Come uh, over and dump you in a trash can. Yeah. I'm, I'm dumping my own head in the toilet and flushing it, which isn't fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I can definitely say I'm not enjoying school. I remember exactly why I put off going to school, but I'm at the home stretch. I'm in the final handful of classes. So I'm just really trying to not think about it even though that's all I'm literally thinking about. Oh, of course. Oh, man. So um, before we get into everything, just like to remind everybody, if you can and if you haven't done so already, heck, even if you've already done it, uh, if you can, please leave us a nice review. Uh, give us a, a good five-star rating. That little bit of time would go a really long way and help us out on our program. Yeah, and please also continue to send in your questions. We are, I think, three weeks away from our season two finale where we're going to do our fun Q&A session. We have a good amount of questions, but keep sending them. The more the merrier. Get as personal or impersonal or weird as you want to get. We will ask them. Absolutely. And that's whatever the answer is, is completely on you. So yeah. <laughs> you live with the consequences of the questions you ask. Exactly. <laughs> so what are you going to be covering today? I am covering a serial killer by the name of Albert Fish, who also went by the Gray Man. That's a pretty catchy name. Right? I am covering a serial killer as well. I am doing Ooh. the Gray Man, known as Albert Fish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I am doing a different serial killer. I am doing the Phantom Killer of Texarkana. Ooh, did he wear a mask that covered half his face? Uh, a full mask, actually. Oh, wow. Nice. Cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's a, it's a dark twisted tale. So tonight we will be, uh, tonight's our mass murder episode, I guess. Yeah. Look at that. Look at us sinking, sinking up finally. Took yeah. Us 38 it. episodes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I believe I went first last week. So you, sir, uh, if you are ready. I am ready. Okie dokie. Artichokies for today's episode. I wanted to cover something really nice and fun and lighthearted, but then I started looking into my topics and there wasn't really anything I wanted to cover that was light and fun and, you know, fun. So I kind of ran into a brick wall there and I decided to go with something a little more dreary. And I don't know if it's my recent string of murderous topics as any sort of reflection on like my mood and like being out of it, or if it's just, it's been hot and it's corrupting my mind. And uh, I don't know, but today I went with Albert Fish. So I do want to throw a pretty big trigger warning here for this episode. It contains murder, rape, and cannibalism, most of it involving small children. So listener discretion is highly, highly advised. Albert Fish was born Hamilton Howard Fish on May 19, 1870 to Randall and Ellen Fish in Washington, D.C. And unfortunately for young Hamilton, he was born into a family pretty ripe with mental illness. His mother, Ellen, had audio and visual hallucinations, and his uncle suffered from mania. One of his older brothers was already in a mental institution when he was born. His father, who was 43 years older than his mother and 75 at the time of his birth, 
died when he was five. Hamilton's mother, not being able to care for him and his siblings, placed Hamilton in an orphanage. While at the orphanage, Hamilton was teased by the other children and called ham and eggs, so he decided to go by the name Albert after a sibling who had passed away a few years before he was born. Sadly for young Albert, teasing was not the only thing he had to endure at the orphanage, which was unfortunately kind of common for the time. The staff used to routinely beat the children and actively encourage the children to fight one another. It was during this time in his life that he came to the conclusion that he actually enjoyed the beatings and the pain. And he would go on to say as an adult, quote, I was there till I was nearly nine. And that's when I started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped and I saw boys do many things that should not have been done. In 1879, when he was nine years old, his mother got a job and was able to look after him again, so she brought him home. Unfortunately, the damage was seemingly done, and Albert had turned the pain he received into a self-mutilating obsession of whipping and beating himself. When he was 12 years old, he began an unhealthy relationship with a telegraph boy. This boy would introduce Albert to urolagnia and coraphagia, which is the practice of drinking his own urine and eating his own poo. Around the same time, Fish also began to visit bathhouse in the city where he could watch young boys undress. And this continued until 1890 when Fish would move to New York City. At 20 years old and in a new city, Fish began working as a male prostitute. During this time, Fish also states he began to rape and sexually assault young boys. Whether his mother knew of what he was doing or if it was just pure coincidence, in 1898, Fish's mother would arrange for him to marry a woman named Anna Mary Hoffman. They would go on to have six children, but thankfully for the kids, he never assaulted his own children. During this time, however, Fish began working as a house painter and would use this cover to meet more young boys and rape and sexually assault them. And apparently raising six kids, painting houses, and raping young boys wasn't enough because Fish also took on an, an additional male lover. And this lover at one point took him to a wax museum where Fish saw a bisection of a penis and became fascinated with sexual mutilation. In 1903, he had to take a break from all the raping and pillaging because he was arrested and convicted of brand larceny and was sent to prison at Sing Sing Prison in New York. After his release, he moved to Delaware, and in 1910, he met a 19-year-old man named Thomas Kedden. Fish would bring Kedden back to a house he was using to squat at, and the two began a sadomasochistic relationship. Whether the sadomasochism part of the relationship was consensual is really not known, but it, when Fish later confessed to all of his crimes, when he talked about Kedden, he made investigators believe that he was intellectually disabled. Eventually, the nature of the relationship would falter, and Fish took Kedden to an abandoned farmhouse and began to torture him. Over the course of two weeks, Fish kept Kedden tied up and eventually cut off half of his penis. When asked about the encounter, Fish would recall, quote, I shall never forget this scream or the look that he gave me. His original plan was to kill Kedden and cut him up into small pieces, but Fish was worried that the hot weather would decompose the flesh too quickly, so he decided to pour peroxide on the mutilated penis, wrap it in a cloth covered in Vaseline, and then left him $10 before kissing him on his forehead and leaving. After, again in his confessions, he would say of Kedden when he left, quote, I took the first train I could get back home. I never heard what happened or tried to find out what happened to him. Now, obviously, Fish was super stable and an amazing husband, so it was kind of a shock to everyone when his wife left him in 1917 for a handyman who just happened to be staying with the family. Well, maybe not that much of a shocker, but 
it was interesting that his wife would leave him and the children and which left fish to raise six kids by himself while all the time trying to satisfy his other needs she also took all the family possessions leaving him fairly broke at this time fish stated that he started to have audio auditory hallucinations and oftentimes would wrap himself up in the carpet claiming that john the apostle told him to do so to cope fish reverted back to his tried and true method of self-harm except this time he took it to the next level he began to insert long needles into his groin and abdomen and at one point he had up to 29 needles in and around his pelvis he also began to beat himself with a paddle that had nails hammered into it and would soak wool and lighter fluid shove it up his butt and light it on fire Jesus. Around the, yeah <laughs> around this time he also allegedly became fascinated with cannibalism and began preparing meals composed solely of raw meat so now that we have all the light stuff out of the way you ready for the nitty and gritty here well i hope you are because it's gonna get a little dicey so strap in kids it's time to take a ride in 1919, Fish allegedly began to see a rise in his need to torture. That year, he claims to have stabbed a mentally disabled boy in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. He stated that he chose children who were mentally handicapped or African-American because he assumed these people would not be missed when they were killed. He even went so far as to pay other kids in the community to find young children who fit this niche so he could torture and kill them. He began to experiment with what he called, quote, implements of hell that were a meat cleaver, a handsaw, and a butcher knife. In 1924, Fish found a girl named Beatrice Keel playing alone in the, near a farm in Staten Island. He approached her and told her that he would pay her if she helped him pick some herbs nearby. Thankfully, Keel's mother saw the girl starting to walk away and chased Fish off. That night, he snuck back onto the farm and fell asleep in a barn where he was discovered by Keel's father and threatened by the dad and chased off the property. Three days later, however, on July 9th, 1924, a young boy in the same neighborhood named Francis McDonald was reported missing by his parents. Friends of McDonald told police that they saw him walk off with an older man with a gray mustache. Francis's mother, Anna, said that she remembered seeing an elderly man walking the streets, muttering to himself. She said, quote, everything about him seemed faded and gray. From here on out, the mysterious stranger who abducted the boy became known as the Gray Man. A search was mounted and eventually Francis's body was discovered hanging from a tree in the woods near his home. An autopsy determined that he was sexually assaulted and then strangled with his own suspenders. They also found many cuts along his legs and abdomen along with his left hamstring, which had been almost entirely stripped of the meat and flesh. While the details of the murder didn't come out until later, Fish admitted to raping and murdering the boy, and he intended to castrate him before he heard a sound and ran off to leave the boy hanging. Interestingly, Fish was pretty upset about the hamstring because he claimed he never did anything with it and didn't want to be blamed for cutting his hamstring. A few of the years later, Fish would see a classified ad in the May 15th, 1928 edition of the New York World newspaper that said, quote, Young man, 18, wishes position in the country. Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. The very same day, a now 58-year-old Fish went to the home and inquired on hiring Edward. Fish introduced himself as, as Frank Howard and claimed to be a farmer from nearby Farmingdale, New York. Fish claimed that his sole intention was to tie Edward up, mutilate him, and leave him to bleed to death. After meeting with Edward, he agreed to come back in a few days to hire and pick him up with the, and also bring a friend. For reasons unknown, Fish didn't show up and sent a telegram stating that he would return in a few days and apologize for his delay. On June 3rd, 
Fish returned to the home to get Edward, but instead noticed Edward's younger sister, 10-year-old Grace. Fish now decided to change his target, and while talking about the farm he didn't really own, he mentioned that he was in town for his niece's birthday and thought that maybe, you know, since Grace was the same age, asked if she wanted to go to the party with him. Somehow, Fish was able to convince her parents to let him go with this complete stranger, and the two of them left, and Grace was never seen again. Fish took her to her home in upstate New York and killed her. Her body was never found for reasons I will get into shortly. The search for Grace began almost immediately, and two days after she disappeared, the police arrested a man named Charles Edward Pope, who was an apartment superintendent in town. He was 66 years old and matched the rough age of the alleged Frank Howard. The strange thing was that Pope's estranged wife was the one that turned him in. He did spend 108 days in prison, but his trial he was found, during his trial, he was found not guilty because they had no evidence. No one knew what happened to Grace until seven years after her disappearance when a letter arrived for Mrs. Budd. The mother was illiterate, but she was able to have her son read the letter. The letter's pretty long, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. The first half is basically explaining a visit a friend of the author, author took to Hong Kong where he witnessed some cannibalism. The second half of the letter is also kind of long, but I feel it's more important to read. It's kind of hard to listen to, so if you don't want to be too disturbed, feel free to skip ahead about 30 seconds or so. The letter, in part, reads, On Sunday, June 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street. I brought you some pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind right then. I wanted to eat her, on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked up. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers, and I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her, and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How did she kick, bite, and scratch? I choked her to death, and then I cut her into small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. Pretty brutal. Uh, Fish most likely would have gotten away with it, but when he mailed the letter in an envelope... The envelope had a small hexagonal logo on it with the letters NYPCBA, which stood for the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. A janitor from the association claimed he had taken some of the stationery home, but left it at a house at 200 East 52nd Street when he moved out. When police checked the house, they discovered that it had been rented to a man named Fish, who had checked out a few days prior. The police were in luck because Fish's son had asked the landlady to hold his dad's check and that they would be by to pick it up later that week. The chief investigator of the case, Mr. William F. King, waited for Fish to arrive and asked if he could come answer some questions, to which Fish agreed. Before walking off, Fish pulled out a razor blade and tried to attack King, but was disarmed. When they got down to the station, Fish just came right out and admitted to killing Grace, and that he actually intended to kill her brother Edward. Upon further investigation, this is when Fish admitted to killing Francis McDonald, as well as another boy named Bill Gaffney. Gaffney was only four years old. Like Grace Bud, Fish admitted to, to the killing in a letter. This time, the letter was delivered to his attorney after he was in jail. Again, this is kind of hard to listen to, but here it goes. I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. 
This is a house that stands alone, not far from where I took him. I took the G-boy there, stripped him naked, and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with a dirty piece of rag I picked up from the dump. Then I burned his clothes. I threw his shoes in the dump, and then I walked back and took the trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked home from there. Next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat of nines tail, homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit them in half at six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from the legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes, and he was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body, just below his belly button. Then through his legs, about two inches below his behind. I put that in the grip with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. Then I put in sacks weighted with stones, tied the ends, and threw them into the pool of slimy water that you, will all, you see all along the road going to North Beach. The water is about three to four feet deep. They sink at once. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best, his monkey and peewees and the little fat behind the roast in the oven I eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek on his behind and put it in the oven. Then I put four meat, four onions and when, meat, when the meat was roasted about a half hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put it in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet little fat behind it. I ate every bit of the meat in only four days. Gaffney's mother tried to visit Fish, but he refused to talk to her and only wept when she arrived. Albert Fish stood trial in March of 1935 in White Plains, New York. During the trial, Fish pled insanity and claimed that he heard voices from God telling him to kill children. A bunch of psychiatrists testified about his many fetishes that Fish had. Fish's attorney stated that the numerous fetishes, which included sadism, masochism, flagellation, exhibition, voyeurism, pickerism, cannibalism, urophilia, corporophagia, hematologna, pedophilia, necrophilia, and infibulation made Fish a, quote, psychiatric phenomenon and that nowhere else in medical or legal records would you find someone who possessed so many abnormalities. The main defense was a witness who was a psychologist who claimed that Fish's mental illnesses caused him to believe that he was hearing voices from God and that he was sacrificing the children to atone for his own sins. Similarly, the cannibalism to Fish's delusions was a form of him taking communion. When the defense closed the questioning of the psychiatrist, the attorney waxed philosophically for about 15,000 words about the early life of Fish and how all of this led to the hard life that Fish led. He asked the psychiatrist if this was the cause for his mental condition. The psychiatrist simply replied, he is insane. The prosecution and defense brought witness after witness to show that Fish was either sane or insane based on the arguments. Ultimately, after 10 days of the trial, the jury decided that Fish was sane and found him guilty. One, lur- one juror later explained that there was no doubt that he was insane, but they felt, as a group, that he should be executed anyway. He was sentenced to death and on January 16, 1936, was strapped to an electric chair at Sing Sing Prison and executed. 
Reportedly, his last words were, quote, I don't even know why I'm here. After the execution, his defense attorney met with the media and he revealed that he had Fish's final statement, but he was not going to release it. When they asked why he wasn't going to release it, he responded by saying, quote, I will never show it to anyone. It is the most filthy string of obscenities I have ever read in my life. Ultimately, Albert Fish was confirmed to have murdered three young children, but was suspected in the murder of five others. According to interviews he gave in prison, Fish claimed that as many as 100 children had been raped or murdered by him since he was 20 years old. But sadly, we will never know the full truth. And that, my bearded friends, is the terrifyingly sad story of the gray man, Albert Fish. Jesus. Right? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty sick. Pretty disturbing. There's a lot to unpack with that guy. And the more I dug into it, the more I was regretting the topic. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, I put so much time into it already. I had to, I wanted to finish it. And yeah, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty disturbing. Yeah. That one is, um, that was dark. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It took a turn. Um, yeah. Wow. Clearly he was unstable mentally. Like he, whatever the issues either born into or developed through, you know, the beatings and stuff like there was, there was a lot there that he, he probably never had a chance at a normal life. And unfortunately a lot of kids pay the price because of that. Absolutely. And it's not, you know, uh, taking away from the heinousness of his acts. It's just one of those things, uh, you know, nature versus nurture, and then mental illness mixed in with that. It's just yeah, not exactly. a great combination of, of anything. Yeah, exactly. I don't even have any comments after that. I was just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I do think it's important to tell these stories. And even though they, they, they are gruesome and hard to listen to, they are important. You know, this, yeah. this really happened to people and we need to be aware of that. We need to, make the changes in our society and our circles of friends to keep mm -hmm. this from happening again. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, on that fun note, let's uh, <laughs> take a quick commercial break <laughs> and we're back. And now it's time for banter with the Beardsleys. So what is banter with the Beardsleys? Banter with the Beardsleys is our fun, super unscripted off the cuff, uh, chance for us to just kind of talk and hang out and give our opinion or argue or debate or banter, if you will, about a topic that you, the listener, has submitted and we read it on air and we just kind of, we go with it and it's a fun little segment. And I believe you have the topic this week. I do. It comes in from Anonymous. So shout out to Anonymous. Hi, Anonymous. Hey. Uh, and they ask, if a guy that was about to die in the electric chair had a heart attack, should they save him? So he just got strapped in. The stress, fear, pressure of it all induces a heart attack. <laughs> do do they save him? Interesting. Um, I mean that's a that's a that's an interesting like moral question because like the person is being put to death, but then if they have a heart attack, like there's no guarantee that you're going to die from that heart attack. 
So it's like, do you put a stay in the execution? And you're like, oh, we're going to wait till you get better. But once you get better, don't <laughs> we're worry. We're going to kill you. Like, the chair's <laughs> waiting for you. Yeah. Um, that's strange. I mean, I feel like they probably have to because, like, the whole point of the electric chair was that it was like a theoretically quick and painless death, even though there's lots that have been botched. Um, and, and I, like you know, it could probably translate to any kind of, you know, uh, state yeah, like, sanctioned yeah, death. Even lethal injection or something now. Yeah. Um, I feel like they probably have to because if you don't render aid, the person's like suffering, which I'm sure the family members of if it's like a murder or something like that, like I'm sure the family members would be OK with that. But I think on a moral ground, they would probably have to. I don't know. I mean, I think if I was the like warden or like the person that's like you know the executioner i think just from that like humanistic side i think i would probably render aid just to see like okay like can we revive them or is it like boom heart attack like their heart you know stopped completely and they're like completely dead you know what i mean like they're gonna die then like maybe leave it but like if they're still like there's a weak pulse or something like that you know like i'm not sure that one's tough yeah um because there's the moral thing and then i don't know i really have no idea what the law is because i'm sure yeah. they have some sort of rule on that and there's i'm sure there is some contingency yeah i know a few years back there was a lethal injection that went wrong so mm -hmm. they had to postpone it for like 24 hours or something like that so i would think legally they would probably do something like that where they postpone it and try and you know, stabilize the guy and then do it again when he's in decent health to take away his life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which seems like counterintuitive, but that's kind of the point of like doing what we do nowadays. Like, you know, the, I don't think they really do the electric chair too much. Um, it's mostly no, lethal injection. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's supposed to be the most painless and yeah, they don't want to like cause like undue duress regardless of yeah. what they're being, you know, put down for essentially. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would think just in the moment you would, the, the instinct would be to revive him. <laughs> and if it doesn't work and he just, you know, the heart just exploded or whatever, then, then you, you know, your job is done. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. just kind of, I think it's, well, then see that, that brings up another kind of moral. What if like they're able to be revived, but then like they're brain dead and they're like a vegetable, then do you keep them on life support or do you just pull the plug? How does that work? I would think they would probably give him like a fighting chance, right? Give him like 12 to 24 hours to come back. And if it's, there's um, just no brain activity. I think you just, you just call him. That's it. Probably. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's no sense in trying to like, he's physically dead. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. I guess that's just very anticlimactic. For yeah. the people that want like the closure aspect of like the death penalty stuff like that that's interesting but on the flip side um if they do have a you know a non-lethal heart attack where they they can be resuscitated it gives their attorneys and the governor an extended window <laughs> to get that pardon or that delay what if i don't know how this would happen but say like they do the electric chair and like it's not the full power it just gives them like a little zap like they didn't wet the sponge or like the you know he flips the power and the power goes out but like he gets zapped and he has a heart attack and they revive him 
does it count as him being executed because he technically was zapped by the electric chair his heart stopped and he came back did there was a horror movie about that I, was like, <laughs> I, I feel like I've, I've heard that so I was like but does that mean they they do they have to kill him again like he already died like does he get a second chance how does that work oh man i, I just think... wake up but like thanks guys like <laughs> walks out the prison i think there was actually a case like that where they zapped him this was like back in the day and they probably i don't know if they had the exact science down to it mm-hmm. but they zapped this guy and it wasn't enough to like kill him kill him mm-hmm. so they left him in the chair for a few minutes to make sure he was he was fine and then when he started coming back they zapped him again jeez oh, like <laughs> They, I think the like verbiage is like you will be electrocuted until death, yeah, or something until like that. Dead, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's I. Th- there's like particular verbiage, like you will be like murdered until your death to make sure yeah. you're dead. Like you're gonna die until you're dead. Exactly. It's it's like a weird, funny verbiage, but I think it's for that moment. Mm-hmm. Where like if you know nowadays you're getting the uh, the lethal injection, if it doesn't kill you, they're gonna keep upping the dosage until something finally does. Yeah. If it doesn't kill you, it doesn't make you stronger. They just keep going. They can exactly. go home. <laughs> so, yeah. So, morally, I think you would have to step yeah. in and, and do something to try and help. Um, legally, I have no idea how that works. Yeah, that's an interesting. Anyone that works in a prison complex or is a... Executioner. Or death row. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any, anyone that knows that, let us know. <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's a really good question. And I, I, I don't know. So yeah, I hope that answered their question. Uh, yeah. To to recap, morally, yes, legally, oh, yeah, me? Me. question mark. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now back into some more depressive killing topics. Yes, absolutely. We're gonna be murdering <laughs> it tonight. Murder. Because because see what I did? Because we both yeah, covered. Cover. Yeah, good job. I do what I can. Killed it. <laughs> <laughs> like I said earlier, I'm doing the Phantom Killer of Tex Arcana. And I'd like to take a second to set the tone of the tragic events we're about to discover. Welcome to Texarkana. It's 1946. It's a small town right on the Texas-Arkansas border. Everyone knows everyone, and if they're not family friends, everyone in town at least is cordial and gives that nod and a smile as you drive down the main road. That is until one morning, when a chilling silence falls over the town. A silence that would grow into fear and dread. This is the story of the Phantom Killer. The story we're about to embark on contains many details of tragic events, including murder and sexual assault. Out of respect for the victims, I feel it's important that their story is told as accurately as possible, so listener discretion is advised. The terror began on February 22nd when a young couple, Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry, had gone on a date to see a movie. The date was going well, so like most teens of the era, they made their way towards the local lover's lane. Things were starting to get a little hot and heavy when a knock came to the driver's side window. A large man was standing outside the car shining a flashlight into the vehicle with what appeared to be a pillowcase with eyes cut out over his head. Hollis thought it was some sort of prank and told the man, Hey guy, funny but wrong car. The man paused for a second and replied, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. The man ordered the couple to exit out of the driver's side door. He then ordered Hollis to, quote, take off your goddamn britches. As soon as his pants were around his ankles, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. 
Larry would later tell investigators that the noise was so loud she had initially thought Hollis had been shot when it was actually his skull fracturing. Larry thought they were being robbed, so she dropped to her knees and began fumbling to find Hollis's wallet to show the man they had no money. The man told her to stand, which she nervously did. His next orders to her were simple. Run. She began running towards an irrigation ditch on the side of the road. He yelled for her to stop and to run into a different direction up the road. In a panic, she did. As she made her way up the road, she began pounding on parked cars, but they were all empty. As she tried one last car, the man was back. He asked her, why are you running? She screamed back that he told her to. He called her a liar. He knocked her to the ground and sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun. After the assault, Larry fled on foot. She attempted to wave down a passing car, but was ignored. She ended up having to run a half a mile to the nearest house and pounded on the door until the residents woke up. Meanwhile, Hollis woke up and was able to flag down a car, but the motorist didn't give him a ride. He did promise and made true to his promise that he would go to the nearest phone and call the police. 30 minutes later, Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. Larry was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound. Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. Both survived the attack. Hollis and Larry gave conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what their attacker looked like. Larry claimed the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for his eyes and mouth and that she could see under the mask and he was apparently, quote, African-American. Hollis claimed the man was a white man and around 30 years old, but admitted he couldn't really distinguish his features as he had been blinded by the flashlight. Both agreed that the assailant was around six foot tall. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larry's account and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of their attacker and were covering for him because... Texarkana in 1946? At this point, it seemed to be an isolated incident. Local papers called it a mugging gone wrong, and although it was a pretty violent attack, people were able to kind of ignore it. That would be short-lived. Let's jump to almost exactly one month later. March 24th. Here's a headline from the local paper. Richard L. Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of six weeks, Pollyann Moore, age 17, were found dead in Griffin's Oldsmobile. For the sake of the story, I'm going to look past the age gap on this one. <laughs> a passing motorist found the car on Lover's Lane. He thought the couple fell asleep until he approached the parked car. He found Griffin between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. Griffin had been shot twice while still in his car. Both had been shot once in the back of the head, and both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of the road near the car suggested to police that they had been killed outside the car and placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board, and it had flowed through the bottom of the car door. A 38 caliber cartridge shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol wrapped in a blanket. In response to the murders, police launched a citywide investigation along with Texas and Arkansas City Police, the Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments, and the FBI. By March 27th, local police had interviewed around 60 witnesses. By March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain any new information on the Griffin and Moore case. 
that comes out to about 6300 in today's money. Unfortunately, it only brought false leads. With no leads and a slow pattern starting to emerge, the town began getting nervous. Law enforcement was doing their best, but a few weeks later, the killer would strike again. On the evening of Saturday, April 13th, 15-year-old saxophonist Betty Jo Booker had a gig at the local VFW club with her band, The Rhythmares. At around 1.30 a.m., the gig was done and her friend, 17-year-old Paul Martin, went to pick her up. This was the last time the pair would be seen alive. Martin's body was found the next morning laying on his left side, a blood trail leading to his body from across the street. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, once through the left fourth rib from behind, and a third time in the right hand, and finally through the back of the neck. After that, a full search party was out in full force trying to find Betty. Unfortunately, her body was found a few hours later and a few miles away from Martin's body. She was laying on her back fully clothed with her right hand in her pocket of an unbuttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as in the first double murder, a 32 caliber automatic Colt pistol. The reward skyrocketed to $1,700, which is about twenty-four dollars in today's dollars. People began spreading rumors about their neighbors or trying to turn each other in. It got so bad the sheriff had to do a news statement to try and calm everyone down and let them know that, while they appreciate all the leads, no one has been arrested at that time, but turning in innocent people is actually making the case harder to crack. Which leads us to May 3rd. Farmer and welder Virgil Sparks was ending his ranch duties for the day, just in time to catch his favorite 9 p.m. radio show. His modest home was 10 miles away from Texarkana, and he took his seat in his favorite armchair, and his wife Katie brought him a heating pad for his back. Katie was in the bedroom laying down on the bed in her nightgown when she heard something from the backyard and asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window three feet away. Katie didn't hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what, quote, sounded like the breaking of glass. She thought Virgil had dropped something and went to see what happened. As she entered the doorway to the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. He was completely covered in blood. She ran to him and lifted up his head, and when she realized he was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. She rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees but soon managed to get back on her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the living room but was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed, so... She stumbled toward her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. She heard the killer come through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind what the police report called a virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. No one was home, so she ran another 50 yards to A.V. Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help. She gasped Virgil's dead and then collapsed. This is where it gets very gangster. 
Prater shot a rifle into the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor. Prater called to Taylor to bring his car because Mr. and Mrs. Starks had been shot. Side note, Katie is about to level up in pure badassness. So as Mr. Taylor put Katie in the car, one of her teeth had a gold filling in it. She took that tooth out as it was falling out anyway to pay him for his troubles. She would go on to survive the attack. With no suspects or arrests, the people began to take matters into their own hands. One deputy went on to tell a pretty crazy story. He said, quote, One night I was patrolling a vacant road with Arkansas State Trooper Charlie Boyd when we came upon a parked car. I got out while Boyd stayed behind. I walked up to the car and noticed a couple. I said, I'm Tillman Johnson with the Miller County Sheriff's Department. Aren't you too scared to be parked out here tonight? The girl replied, You're the one that ought to be scared, mister. It's a good thing you told me who you were. Turns out she'd been pointing a pistol at him the entire time. Unfortunately, the list of suspects has led nowhere. The most likely suspect was a car thief named Yol Swinney, whose wife even admitted that he was, in fact, the killer, which she later recanted. And due to lack of a confession, lack of evidence, they never charged him with the murders. However, uh, he was arrested for stealing cars, and as soon as he was locked up, the murders suddenly stopped. He ended up passing away in 1994, and if he was the killer, he took it to his grave. The fear and tragedy of these events would last for generations. It would actually go on to inspire the 1976 movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown and its much-forgotten remake in the 2000s. Although it only lasted 10 weeks, the case has lived on for over 70 years, and it's still unsolved. So this has been the story of the phantom killer of Texarkana. That's crazy. Like the stuff like that always like fascinates me just because it's like, you know, the whole town, like they're all on edge. It's like people are being murdered and, you know, stuff like ha is happening. And then it's like, Oh, it just stopped. Like, yeah, the guy got arrested or whatever. And like the killing stopped, but it's like, can you just like the tension and like the anxiety in the, like the town, the air, like you're scared to go out, you know, like everyone's going to have like a weapon and just gonna, like, I feel like it's just going to make things so volatile. Like it's always so crazy to me when stuff like that happens. Like, you just wait around like, okay, what's like the minimum safe period? Is it like 20 years, 30 years? Like how do we, you know, when do we start feeling like, okay, maybe things are good, you know? Yeah. And that's, I think that tension is the thing that that yeah. probably make it worse. Mm -hmm. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. There was one of my favorite ones, uh, the house on Maple Street or the mm -hmm. monsters are due on Maple Street. And in it, um, the lights go out except for this one house on Maple Street and everybody turns on that family because they think they know something that the others don't. And it turns into this whole thing. And it just went to show how easy it is for a community to turn on each other. Mm -hmm. And I, I can imagine it being one of those things. You start looking at everybody. If somebody isn't panicking, well, now they're a suspect to you. And it just, exactly. yeah, it gets ugly really fast. Yeah. And the fact that it's never been solved. Like, it is kind of a weird coincidence that uh, when Swinney was arrested, the murder mm -hmm. stopped, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Exa yeah, exactly. I mean, it, maybe he did. Again, there is zero evidence that actually links him to the crimes. Mm -hmm. So it's a safe bet he probably didn't have anything to do with it. He was just the low life that they were trying to blame. Yeah, trying to like the, the scapegoat or whatever. Yeah. So the fact that, yeah, I, I mean, how do you know it stopped? What tells you it stopped, you know? Yeah. And that's, yeah, like, how did, you know, that's the word, like, the investigations come in. Like, okay, if there's more murders, like, what if the guy just changed his MO to, 
you know, try to change it up. Like, we don't know. That's crazy. Yeah. And what was interesting about the movie is they kind of, the, the remake kind of did a retelling of it. Mm-hmm. So in the, uh, the remake of the movie, it, the, the, the motivation for the killing is because somebody watched the original 1976 version of it uh, and then became a copycat killer of the original mm. killer. Interesting. So it's like life imitating art, imitating life kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, in theory, and I'm not wishing this on anybody, it could happen again. Yeah. It's just one sick person out there watches the, the movie and, and goes out and does it. So, yeah. If anybody knows anything, yeah. please, <laughs> please reach out. We will get you in touch with who you need to get in touch with. Like, Good job, man. Yeah, thank you. It was a, a lot of fun to write this at two in the morning in a dark house. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that. Nice. <laughs> so if somebody wanted to write in and give us a topic for banter with the beards, please send us something where we can ask each other or just wants to say hello, where and how can they do that? They can do that any of our social medias. Our Instagram is at Bearded Things Pod. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash bearded things. We have a really cool um, Facebook group that's going on right now. It's called the Bearded Things Bearded Friends Group. Uh, come find us. Join the group. Join the fun. We have lots of conversations. Lots of things get posted pretty regularly. So come say hi. Have fun. Uh, you can also find us on our YouTube, which is at Bearded Things Pod, and our Twitter, which is at Bearded Things. We also have a website, which is www.beardedthings.com on that website we have a contact us page you can fill out the little form it'll send it directly to us or if you just want to be old-fashioned and send us an email you can email us at contact us at beardedthings.com we should probably get a p.o box they can send us letters that'd be fun that would be fun we'll put that in the works yes i don't know how much a p.o box costs send us messages um we love the electronic variety this is 2021 we live in the future Well, that'll just about do it for this week. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye.